of being. The third of the ennobling truths is that there is an end to dukkha. This, of course, does not imply, you know, about ending aging, sickness, or death. But there's an ending to the argument. There's an ending to this compulsive need to, to have more, to become more, to insist on life being different. There's an ending to the arguments and a very deep, sublime peace, a very profound wakefulness. And then the Buddha speaks about the path to the end of dukkha. Now, over the last two days, I've, I've hoped you've noticed how much emphasis has been given to appreciating, enjoying, gladdening, um, the cultivation of the lovely. This is a way of bringing dukkha to an, to an end, through understanding. Cultivating the lovely, even though we don't put it in particular words in, or in those particular words in contemporary mindfulness settings, this is, of course, what we are encouraging clients and patients to do. Cultivate the lovely. Cultivate spaciousness. Cultivate kindness. Cultivate compassion. Cultivate forgiveness. Cultivate generosity. Cultivate all that which is healing and liberating and nourishing within ourselves. Now, which brings me to what I would like to speak about this evening. This path or this process of waking up that we are engaged in. And of course, there's always a value in, you know, reflecting on what waking up means for us what does it mean to us you know i think it's so important to remember that in the early teachings uh the buddha really encouraged graduates you know he really encouraged people to to come to the same understandings the same liberating understandings that he had found in his pathway so what does waking up mean to us there's probably no one definition do we know the moments in our life when we feel wakeful? Do we know the moments in our lives when we feel unawake, unconscious? Do we notice that the places where we suffer and struggle the most in our lives are actually the places where we're most unconscious, dissociated, and habitual? Do we notice the flavors of those moments when we feel really awake, here, eyes open, heart open, and the taste of the loveliness of those moments? So I think that waking up, this process of waking up, I think that we're all engaged in, is waking up from a way of living that is governed by compulsion, governed by habit, uh, waking up from a way of living that is governed by a, a kind of a, a belief in an inner deficit of not having enough, not being good enough, not being worthy enough. I think waking up feel, it in, is involved in this process of no, no longer feeling so, so bound to patterns, um, habitual patterns of reactivity. I think waking up has another side. I think waking up has something to do with resonance rather than dissonance. That we feel that we, we live an embodied life, a life where we embody what we most deeply value, that we embody what we most deeply aspire to, that we embody the, the ethics and the kindness and the compassion that we know to be invaluable for us and for the healing of our world. I think waking up is, is about seeing life as it actually is, making peace with the unarguables, the unarguables of, of change, of impermanence, the unarguables of, of conditionality, waking up to that. 
in the Satipatthana Sutta that we've been speaking about, there's one uh, refrain that is repeated with some frequency where the Buddha speaks about abiding independent, not clinging to anything in this world. Abiding independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And I think there's something a little bit curious about that statement because on one level, we, we know we are not independent. You know, that, that our very life, our very survival depends upon, you know, the goodness of so many, depends upon nature, depends upon so many things. But I think when the Buddha speaks about abiding independent, he really is speaking about what I referred to, I think, yesterday, finding a way of living where we are really not a prisoner of the world of conditions or the world of patterns. I know that the question was raised yesterday in the question period by Josephine where, you know, she, she brought up this, this sensitivity that we have around uh, setting goals, um, you know, and it's understandable that sensitivity, you know, for people who, who easily kind of just fall into patterns of, of, of striving and forcing and willpower, goals can immediately trigger those patterns. And yet, if you look at the early teachings, of course, it's absolutely peppered with goals. You know, the Buddha was not shy about speaking about goals. And on some level, they, they, there's something strange when we have, um, you know, almost an extreme allergy uh, let's use a different word, aspirations. Let's use a different word. Instead of goals, aspirations. What we aspire to in this life. What we value. What we feel are, are aspirations of, of qualities that are, are too important to forget. And, and it's, a, it's a curious tension because... You know, I think all of us as individuals, probably, I, I doubt if any of us embarked on this path, which can be, you know, so demanding, in order to stay the same. Did anybody do that? Hope that we can embark on this path and, you know, take part in retreat after retreat and hope at the end of it, we're going to have exactly the same amount of anger or exactly the same amount of anxiety. I don't think so. We aspire. When people come into your classes, I, I doubt that they come in as a way of learning to be, uh, you know, more, more intimate with their own, just simply more intimate with their own pain, or, or to become a, a, you know, a more mindful spectator upon their own disasters. I think when people come into your classes, they too have aspirations aspirations to, to find a way to the end of distress, aspirations to, to flourish, aspirations to, to grow into creativity and, and groundedness. And I, I think there's something very important about really honoring those aspirations. They're, they're not implicitly bound to turn into striving or goals or mechanisms of, of further judgment. In fact, they can be deeply encouraging, depending on how we speak about them. Now, waking up is a very noble aspiration, but I think we, we all know that this path is not easy, is it? I mean, there are moments of, of great loveliness, moments of, of joy, moments of peace, moments of stillness and contentment. But there's also moments of despair, and doubt, you know, and feeling that we're not getting anywhere or, or that we're, we're not good enough for this path. There are challenges for all of us. But those challenges, of course, are the places we, we cultivate the lovely. These are really the classrooms of healing, the classrooms of understanding. I think in the, the journey of waking up, which is not easy, I, I think it's, I find it helpful to ask ourselves, you know, what are our friends? What are our allies on this journey? 
allies that support and, and nourish us, that incline our hearts towards awakening. And so here we come to what I wanted to speak about tonight. There's two lists. This is the fourth way of establishing mindfulness. And strangely, I'm going to speak about the fourth way of establishing mindfulness this evening. Because although we often approach the, the ways of establishing mindfulness in quite a sort of linear way of body, of Vedana, of consciousness, and then we come to this fourth way of establishing mindfulness, um, it's not necessarily that linear, is it? I mean, all of these aspects of our being, our functioning, are alive in every moment. In every moment, there's body. In every moment, there's Vedana. In every moment, there's consciousness. <clears throat> and in every moment, there is these qualities that are listed in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness. Sometimes I think it would be more helpful almost to have this as the first way of establishing mindfulness. Because in a sense, it, it, sort of, it sort of contextualizes the path, I think, in a way that experientially is really, really familiar to people. So one of the lists that is found in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness is called the Bojangas, or the limbs of awakening. Bo comes from Bodhi, or awakening, and Anga uh, is translated as limbs. I think probably for some of you who know some of this, uh, the more common translation is the seven factors of awakening. But I think more accurately, these, these are the seven limbs of awakening. That They are qualities within us. Okay, They are seven qualities within us. Uh, the Buddha refers to these seven qualities as the seven treasures. Our inner wealth that we can draw upon, that we can identify, that we can appreciate, that we can strengthen, and that we can bring to fruition. I think sometimes there's a, there's a value in memorizing these lists, by the way. So let me just speak to these lists, this first list of the awakening qualities. Unsurprisingly, the first quality that is named is sati, or mindfulness. Because nothing can be cultivated without mindfulness. Nothing can be understood without mindfulness. Nothing changes without mindfulness. So this mindfulness is that moment we place our feet in the ground of the present moment and open our eyes and ask, what is happening just now within us? and around us. The second of these qualities that incline the mind, incline the heart towards awakening is investigation, questioning. And I'll, I'll go into each of these qualities a little bit more as we go along. The third of these qualities, <clears throat> in the Pali, the word is virya. It's often translated as energy, uh, sometimes as dedication, enthusiasm, passion, and also one of its important translations is courage or heroism. The next of these qualities Chris has spoken about and we will speak more about is joyfulness. Joyfulness. Heart, cultivating a heart of gladness, of appreciation, of joyfulness. The next of these qualities is tranquility, calming, followed by what Chris was speaking about last night, this quality of samadhi, unification, collectedness. And the last of these qualities, which is often used interchangeably with liberation, is equanimity. But of course, it's a quality that we also cultivate and practice in every step of the way. Now, again, I, I think it's, it's important not to see this list of qualities as being entirely developmental. You know, that I do this and then I do that and then I do this. But to see these as qualities that enliven us. Now, three of these qualities 
investigation, energy, joyfulness. These are said to be the qualities that do enliven us, that, that awaken us, that bring us to that, that felt sense of being fully alive. Whereas tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity often be said to be the qualities that ground us, that ground us. And in different moments of our day, we might actually see, ah, this is a moment when tranquility or samadhi is really helpful. You know, if the, if the mind, if the body is agitated, ah, let's find that calming, let's find that grounding. If there's times in our day that feel very uh, kind of dull or dissociated or disconnected, this might be the time for investigation. It might be the time for, for courage. It might be the time for the cultivation of joyfulness. Now recently, I think, well, not so recently, but for some time now, I also have come to think of these qualities as being nuances of mindfulness, as being aspects or dimensions of mindfulness. And I, I find that very helpful. I mean, Chris and I will speak much more about this tomorrow night, but certainly in the early teachings, and I think today also, mindfulness is not this one-dimensional quality. You know, it's not monochrome. It, it has many limbs within it, many qualities within it. And I find it helpful to think of these qualities as being nuances or dimensions of sati or mindfulness. Now, when you come to the Satipatthana Sutta, you see that this list of these awakening qualities sits alongside another list, which are the Nivaranas, it's sometimes translated as the hindrances, but much more, these are qualities of forgetfulness. These are the qualities or the patterns that sabotage intentionality, that often take us to places far from where we wish to be, <clears throat> that obstruct our capacity to see things the way they actually are. They can be experienced very personally, but these are quite universal patterns. You will certainly have encountered them in your clients and in your patients, and I'm pretty confident you will have encountered these patterns within yourself and likely today. So let's go through the second list of these veiling factors, these distorting pat patterns, these saboteurs of everything that is lovely. They saboteur intention, they, they, sabotage, they sabotage compassion, peace, kindness. Uh, they're difficult. So the first of these is sensual craving. This ongoing pursuit to maximize the pleasant sensation and to minimize the unpleasant sensation. The movement, the compulsive, often compulsive movement towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. This is such a powerful pattern, isn't it? I mean, we don't, in moments of distress, we don't necessarily think, oh, I'll go to the fridge and get some ice cream. We're at the fridge eating the ice cream. Hmm? These, are, these are often so, so compulsive, so, so driven. And of course, this pattern has very deep roots in terms of a sense of inner deficit, insufficiency, not enough, and it makes us busy. Now, the second of these veiling patterns, uh, I think you can probably all name these along with me, uh, ill will, aversion. Don't want, shouldn't be happening, get away from, annihilate, overcome, suppress, just somehow remove myself from the unpleasant or enact this ill will when we meet that which we find difficult to embrace or to accept. Now the third of these patterns is numbness 
dullness. Sometimes it's just what happens when you sit down on your cushion with the finest of intentions and seconds later, your chin is on your chest and you're sleeping. You don't know where it came from. You're not even particularly tired. And that yet somehow we check out. We just check out. There are times when we just do not want to be here. And we can see how in the, the landscape of low mood, you know, in the landscape of depression or in the landscape of chronic pain, you know, how this pattern kicks in, sometimes almost as a protective mechanism. And I'm, I'm not entirely dismissing that. Sometimes the heart needs protecting um, until we resource ourselves in other ways. Um, but it's just that pattern of somehow just becoming unconscious. Restlessness and worry, agitation and worry, the body becoming, you know, uh, worked up, frantic, busy, the mind becoming busy, the, you know, strategizing, the, the over planning, the, uh, you know, trying to fix everything, trying to make the world perfect. Um, and of course, the, the last of these veiling qualities is skeptical doubt. You know, I just can't do this. I'm, I'm not able to. I'm, I'm just not capable. I'm not good enough. Now, it, what is interesting is that uh, the trigger, the, the, um, the trigger for both the awakening factors and the trigger for the forgetfulness factors is exactly the same. The trigger or the launch pad is dukkha, the messy space. When we meet the messy space, that which is difficult or hard to accept, we can see that it's, an, it's a kind of crossroads. And we can go in the direction of those very familiar dissociative patterns, or we can go in the direction of the awakening factors, the quality, the, the treasures within, the treasures within that, that begin to heal and begin to liberate. You know, I found in the, the street where I live, and I'm sure this has probably happened in many places, that, you know, when we went into lockdown, that there was a frenzy of DIY unleashed. You know, everybody was building something or fixing something or repairing something. You know, the sound of saws was going on from morning till night, you know, and hammers and, uh, you know, the step ladders were coming up. And I, and I looked at it and I thought, ah, this is what we do when we're faced with dukkha. We get busy. You know? When we can't find another way of responding, we'll just get busy because that helps us to forget what's actually happening. So I, I'm sure you've recognized both these, these difficult patterns, these veiling patterns, and you know, you'll certainly see them when you're teaching. You know, when you find yourself teaching a class and everybody's asleep, um, nobody came in tired, but everybody's snoring, you know, or, or you know, the, the, the kind of collective resistance that at times arises. And I'm sure we recognize them in ourselves. And a lot of times in our life, we're, we're, we're in this dance. We're in this dance between the awakening factors and the forgetfulness factors. We're in this dance. And what is so important to see is that the, the, the relational nature of these two lists, you know, that the awakening factors don't begin after we've somehow managed to get rid of the veiling factors. In fact, you know, in my experience in practice, you know, one way of framing practice is, a, is this movement from a very fragmented mindfulness to a more sustained mindfulness. And I think for most of us, that journey to a more sustained mindfulness in everything that implies is actually a journey through these veiling factors. So it's really so important not to see the veiling factors as bad news. This is what happens when we don't have another way or another means of responding to dukkha. So we, it's, I think it's helpful to see this dance we engage in, you know, and you've probably found yourself engaging in that dance today. 
that sometimes you find yourself simply seemingly lost or overwhelmed by one of the veiling factors. And then sometimes you just remember and you wake up and there's mindfulness. And then you start to think, well, how do I care for this veiling factor? You know, what is the appropriate response, for example, to sensual desire? I, I encourage you to think about that. What is the appropriate response to sensual craving? You know, and in my experience, it's the cultivation of joyfulness. This is what eases that deficit culture, the insufficiency culture. You know, what is the appropriate response to ill will? Strange, I'm going to give you the same answer. <laughs> Joyfulness. Or we're actually drawing upon one of the other extended families, as Chris has introduced you today, to metta bhavana, to the cultivation of kindness. What is the appropriate response to dullness and numbness? Investigation. Investigation brings energy. Energy is not something you can force. Curiosity, interest, engagement. This is really the response to dullness and numbness. If you found yourself in, in restlessness or agitation or worry today, what is the most helpful response? What can you cultivate in the midst of that? Ah, we remember about calming. We remember about collecting. When we find ourselves in the midst of doubt, again, what is the appropriate response? Investigation of our belief systems, our ideas about who we are and what is possible for us. And mindfulness is always an appropriate response. So we're learning to, to engage in this dance, you know, it, it's not as if somehow, you know, we reach some magical moment when these veiling patterns are, you know, being fixed or resolved or disappeared. Um, that's, that may or may not be so at some point. But I think what is important to see is that they are invitations, just as the awakening factors are invitations. We should never underestimate the power of the veiling factors. The Buddha speaks of them as being the creators of mental illness. They sabotage everything that is wholesome and lovely within us. We should never underestimate their power, but they are not life sentences. And I think with any of these difficult patterns we see in ourselves, you know, just because they, they have a long history does not at all imply that they have an equally long future. Because when does a pattern come to an end? When it's no longer believed in? When it's no longer given authority? When it's no longer enacted? When it no longer has the power to condition consciousness? In that moment, that pattern has come to an end. So we can see there's a sort of creative tension, isn't there, in waking up? It's like in one hand, we, we hold our, our aspirations and all that we love and all that we value and all that we aspire to. And this pulls us in a certain direction, a direction of exploration, a direction of deepening and awakening. And in the other hand, it's almost as if, as if we hold the, the veiling factors. And this pu pulls us in a different direction. It pulls us in the direction of, of binding us to distress. So there's this tension, you know, aspiration forgetfulness, you know, aspiration forgetfulness. And it, it's so, it, it, you know, when we see that tension within ourselves, it, it's possible to become very judgmental. You know, it's about me doing something wrong, you know, but actually, and, and to see it as being a negative tension. But I don't see this dance as being a negative tension at all. I see this as being a creative tension. Because this is where we we're really can explore and we really can cultivate. And we can truly cultivate the lovely rather than cultivating the unlovely. 
I think with the veiling factors, it it is actually quite helpful to, first of all, I really encourage you to memorize the list, but it's really helpful to be able to identify these patterns, you know, to, to develop a certain literacy about them, you know, not just a conceptual literacy, but an experiential literacy. How do we know dullness? You know? How do we know uh, craving? How do we know ill will? Because the moment that we start to develop that literacy, we're, we're actually engaging probably in the first function of mindfulness, which is developing that simple knowing. But the moment that we develop that literacy, in reality, we've stepped out of the eye of the storm. We, we've begun to have a conversation with these veiling factors. Ah, dullness, ah. How do I know this? You know, this is curious. Is it in the body? Is it in the mind? You know, where, what is dull or what is not dull? Ah, agitation or, or restlessness. Ah, what is agitated just now? How do I know it? Where is it not happening? We've begun, we've begun to develop a dialogue, and that very dialogue in itself is the beginning of embodying these awakening factors. So this is a creative tension, um, not a negative one. So I uh, really, I, I sometimes just get slightly, just end up speaking about something slightly differently than I had in mind. So uh, I'm realizing we're 40 minutes in and I haven't even started with this material. Um, Okay, so tomorrow, Chris and I have the intention of unpacking the mindfulness landscape in much more detail. So that's not the one that I want to um, really emphasize tonight. Investigation. Investigation of the dharmas, as it's put in, in, in the discourse. Investigation of what's happening right now. This is the Buddha often referred to investigation as being the impo most important factor of awakening. Because this is when we begin to, to really question. Or, or first of all, we begin to go underneath our concepts because investigation is often deeply experiential. You know, how we hear the, the teaching on change. How do we know that in our own experience in this moment? How do we, how do, what lies underneath our concepts? Isn't this what we teach people to do in mindfulness all the time? Recognizing that the story of their knee is not their knee. We teach people to go underneath the assumptions, but also this is a very big landscape because it's teaching us to go beneath the, the views that we hold. Do you, do you ever find yourself wondering, you know, what, why do I think the way that I do? You know, why do I have the opinions that I have? You know, why do I have the reactions that I have? You know, where do I, where do these views of who I am actually arise from? Because we see that the moment that we don't question views and opinions, the moment that we don't question our assumptions, they describe reality to us. And we react to that reality that we have assumed to be the truth. So investigation is this process of waking up from the world of views, waking up from the world of assumptions, waking up from the world of opinions, and to see how much Distress is built into that world. Wittgenstein once said that words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. The words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. Yeah? With our views and our assumptions, we're essentially saying, I know you or I know myself. The moment that we've accepted our view to be a total description of the moment, we actually cease to learn. We cease to be surprised. We cease to see anything anew. And in that, actually, we do cease to learn. 
And mindfulness is so much a way of, of recovering our capacity for wonder. Our capacity to be taught and retaught. Our capacity to let life tell us its story rather than us telling the story of life. What happens when you see someone and you say, you don't even say it, it's so unconscious, I know you. I know you're this kind of person or that kind of person. Therefore, I know how to react to you. I know whether you have, you know, meaning to me, whether you have the potential to be, you know, supportive or gratifying or the potential to be threatening. I know you. How do you respond when somebody says to you, I know you? It, it's almost, it's, it's like the end of the story, isn't it? Rather than an unfolding process, uh, a fluidity of unfoldment. It's almost like uh, people, things, everything is kind of frozen in time, frozen in concepts. And mindfulness, in my understanding, is moving much more into a realm of unknowing, of unknowing, allowing ourselves to, to be touched and, and to truly see anew and to see freshly. And this is quite a journey, and it begins with investigation, this willingness to see more deeply. Many years ago, I was teaching in Israel, and I went to the office one day to, I needed something. And I saw this dog lying outside the office door, lying in the dust with this huge lump growing on his head. And my, my first response was actually almost one of, of horror. This looks so terrible. And then I saw the narrative begin. <laughs> Who are these people that they're not taking care of their animals? You know, what does this say about them? This is supposed to be a caring community. And look what's going on here. And I, I went away and I, you know, I spent a little bit of time with that narrative. And then I decided, you know, well, at tea time, I'm going to go out and talk to the people in the office. They need to activate themselves here to look after this dog, to come out of this indifference or this neglect. And I got back to the, the office and the dog was sitting up beside the office door. And the rock was on the ground beside it. The lump was on the ground beside it. And all the time, it was a rock the same color as a dog's fur. Do you ever have those moments when you, you suddenly realize that how much you've been ambushed or sabotaged by your own concepts, how conclusions are drawn, and how those conclusions then govern, govern our responses, our, our reactions? So investigation is this way of moving from something that is fixed to something that is fluid, something that is unfolding, that can touch us, that can move us, that we can learn from. And this is, we begin this really in, in, in contemporary mindfulness, we, we begin this almost from week one. And, you know, in, in more formal traditional forms of practice, we, we often actually, we have to remind ourselves to investigate. We have to remind ourselves to, to look more deeply beneath the surface of things. To, to be aware of our conclusions, to be aware often every time we say, I know you, or I know myself, what has actually happened is that we've seized upon a fragment of experience and mistaken it to be the whole. I run into someone who has some pattern that irritates me, and I seize upon that fragment of who they are and I mistake it to be the whole of who they are. I don't see the moments of generosity or, or the sincerity or the efforts. I don't see the suffering. So we're learning not to seize upon fragments of experience. And then there can be fluidity. Um,
Now, the third of these qualities is, as I've mentioned, viria, uh, courage, heroism, energy. It's the energetic factor in wise effort. Um, it's enthusiasm, it's ardency. And, you know, sometimes I think it really is just the willingness to show up. Just the willingness to show up. You know, personally, I feel that every time we engage in a practice, a sitting or a walking, every time one of our, our clients or patients shows up for a class, we should pat ourselves on the back and say, well done. You know, Viria has something to do with our willingness to bear discomfort, to keep showing up in moments of discomfort, when everything within us is sort of yelling at us to flee, or to abandon, to really to have that commitment inwardly, to not consent into those patterns. And that willingness to, to sometimes bear discomfort. It's something that it, it generates confidence in our being. You know, when you have clients and patients in your classes and they encounter something that's really difficult, a pain in the body or a pain in the heart, you, you never probably, I doubt if you ever say to them, oh, well, never mind, just leave, you know, just leave that bitch, you know. Um, you know, we'll just skip over that, you know, or, you know, we'll just pretend that's not happening. No, we encourage people to show up, to, to find the resilience and the courage to actually bear with the difficult. I think without that, there's no ground for compassion. And there's no ground for, for embracing life as it is. And we can show up. And we've all been asked to show up over these last months. And I've, I've witnessed remarkable gestures of courage and fearlessness and, and that willingness to bear discomfort. And I know how much confidence it actually gives to people. The tendency to abandon, the tendency to flee is so powerful, isn't it? It seems easier, and yet it truly makes life more difficult. When I first began to practice, I began to practice in a community of Tibetan refugees um, who'd been through a nightmare. You know, the, the loss of loved ones, sometimes imprisonment, sometimes torture, the loss of their country, um, the loss of any certainty being a refugee in India. You know, it's no, no easy path. And what totally uh, stunned me, actually, into silence was their virya, their courage. That in the midst of all of that, somehow their hearts were intact. Their hearts weren't broken. And it was the clearest expression of viria I've ever come across. You know, they, 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 uh, they were suffused with generosity and joyfulness and, and happiness and kindness. And then I thought, aha, these folks really do know something that I don't know. And it wasn't learned in perfect conditions. It wasn't learned in ideal conditions. It was learned in the most difficult of all classrooms, in developing this, this, this quality of, of courage, this willingness to bear with, to bear with and not to be broken, to bear with and not to be broken. And I think it is so important not to underestimate that capacity in ourselves. Of course, there are times that we falter. There's times when we lose our way. Um, there's times when we, we just seem to plain blow it. You know? And yet there is that moment of, of beginning again and truly honoring what we most deeply value. And this is actually what keeps your clients and patients coming back week after week. It's not because they're having a great time all the time. This is sometimes very difficult territory. And yet you have confidence in them. And perhaps, you know, they pick up on that. Um, sometimes I think people in real difficulty are at times carried by the confidence of others in them. And we, we learn to develop that quality of, of bearing with. And we discover it has very profound effects. There is energy. Um, it's often said that joyfulness really looks backwards to this quality of viria, 
of energy, of, of courage, of fearlessness. Because that's actually when we really take our place in life, isn't it? When we really set our feet in the midst of the present moment. And this quality of energy, and of course this often comes to in formal meditation, um, we can see how it has a taste. It has a taste of joyfulness. And joyfulness is such a huge, a huge topic. And again, Chris and I are going to go into this in much more detail uh, in a couple of days. Um, a path without joyfulness is a path of gritted teeth. A path of gritted teeth is not a path where we feel encouraged to come back to again find our cushion or our walking path. A path of gritted teeth is not the way to travel this, this journey. The Buddha once said that this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. It's important not to think of joyfulness or happiness as being a reward for having suffered enough. Happiness, joyfulness needs to inform everything that we do in this practice. Sometimes in the Tibetan tradition, it sometimes says that joyfulness is appreciating the cultivation of the wholesome. Hmm? What heals, what liberates, to really appreciate that loveliness. And it is such a powerful quality because it's in really in that cultivation of joyfulness that craving cannot find a root that ill will really cannot find any roots. So please don't think of this as an optional extra. Think about this as an attitudinal gesture of the mind. This is how we approach the moment with this affectionate curiosity, this, this sense of celebration of what is well. Now we're really just going to have a little bit of a race through these next qualities because we're really running out of time. We have spoken about tranquility, this calming, this calming of, of the patterns of agitation as a process, as a process begins in the body. The calming that we establish within the body invites the heart and invites the mind to calm. I think there's an important shift here about learning to love stillness more than we love drama or intensity. For me, that's really the, the most instructive shift, that we learn to love stillness more than we love excitement or intensity or drama. When that tranquility is there, it, it, by the way, when the, the Buddha speaks about samadhi, he says, in a mind of happiness, Samadhi finds a true foundation. He doesn't just speak about happiness as being the product of Samadhi, and it is. He actually speaks about happiness being the forerunner of Samadhi. And, and think about how that is for you. You know, in the moments of, of life where you, you feel very discontented or, you know, very, very, um, uh, very wound up, very, very contracted, there's no room for samadhi, is there? Because that's just generating so much narrative, so much thought. So in some ways, you know, it's really helpful to think, how do I cultivate a mind of happiness? So not talking about euphoric happiness here, you know, not talking about great highs. Sometimes it's just the quiet contentment of the willingness to be where we are as wholeheartedly as we can be. Just that quiet contentment, that quiet sense of well-being, where samadhi can begin to, to find its roots. This, this, this wonderful, this wonderful sense of, of inner unification and integration and collectedness, you know, where we're not we're not wanting, we're not not wanting, you know, we're not spacing out that sense of wakefulness within that true sense of wakefulness. And this, by the way, is not a stranger to any of you. There are many moments of very naturally born samadhi that we've all encountered in our lives. You know, moments when we're, we're just deeply touched by something that we see in nature, or we're deeply touched by 
by uh, another person's acts or words. Um, we're, we're, we're you know, deeply touched by the laughter of a child. And you feel that natural samadhi. You know? No one's having to shout at us to pay attention. You know, we are attending because we are caring, because we're being touched by. And samadhi is the ground in which equanimity can begin to develop. It's equally near all things. To truly stand in the middle of all things, without preferences, without biases, without being bound by reactivity, where we can truly embrace life as it is, with, as Chris described it, it's 10,000 joys and sorrows. It's 10,000 joys and sorrows. And finding that balance inwardly, where we're not afraid of the sorrows and we're not chasing the joys, but we're developing that deep sense of, of equipoise, of being equally near all things. And this, as the Buddha put it, this is where the fires, the fires of greed and hatred and confusion really begin to cool. And, and we find in really that deep sense of, of healing and, and wakefulness. Astonishing. <laughs> the bus tour through the awakening factors. Uh, um, thank you. Thank you for your attention. But I would really encourage you to turn these two lists into something that we cultivate and explore and practice and embody. These are not just sort of, you know, academic lists or pieces to be memorized. This is describing the landscape of our hearts and the potentiality of our hearts. The treasures, as I put it, put it the seven treasures within. Let's just take just one moment to sit quietly. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.